Okay. Uh, hey, guys. Welcome, welcome. It's good to see everybody. Uh, I like this. I like this midweek uh, connection point that we have where we get to enjoy each other's company and fellowship with the Lord. And let me just say it again. I love you guys so much, and I'm so thankful for you. Uh, so we're going to do the first installment of our apologetic series, one of two. This one, we're just going to do basic apologetics, and I'm going to use a lot of what uh, uh, Pastor Don Raglan used to share, plus I'm going to uh, use a little bit, who's ever read Case for Christ by Lee Strobel? It's a great book. Yeah, I'm going to use a little bit of that. going to use a little bit of uh, stuff the Lord's just sort of showed me, and I've pontificated about over the years. Uh, it's going to be kind of a mishmash, but it's going to be a basics so that you can aptly defend your faith uh, against those who would critique it and scrutinize it. So you don't just feel uh, helpless when people probe you with questions, okay? And then week two, we're going to do uh, just a very solid teaching on uh, how God defines human sexuality and uh, apologetics on why homosexuality and the Christian faith are not compatible. Um, that doesn't mean God doesn't love those who struggle with that. It just means that something's got to change and it's not going to be the word. And I want to show, I want to explain that uh, so that it's just easy for you to articulate that to other people who would want to challenge that, okay? Uh, so that's what it's going to be. So if you, if, uh, I think the kids are coming in this one, uh, but if you have a kid um, in, in children's church and you don't want them, I'll be as sensitive as I can uh, the following week. I won't say anything, you know, that would make you want to say earmuff, but if you don't want your kid to be a part of that, uh, then just say something to somebody and we'll make arrangements uh, otherwise, okay? So let me just pray and then we'll get into it. So, Father God, we thank you, Lord Jesus. Uh, God, we thank you that you are the one true God. Lord, you don't need us to defend you. God, you don't need us to argue on your behalf. Lord, you, you, you are capable within yourself. But, Lord, you give us knowledge so that we can know you and then reveal you to others. So, Father, we thank you for that. And we ask, Lord, that uh, my words, God, would, would be... Um, honoring and glorifying to you, and that my my tongue would be navi or would be um, used by your spirit to preach the truth, to teach the truth. In Jesus' name, we pray. Pray, Amen. Marcus, if you'll play the video for me, you guys are gonna love this. I love this video. Very important apologetic video. I need 100% participation for this to work. Yeah, everyone's here. All 12, 11, 11 of us. Well, what's the plan? Well, as you know, Jesus is dead. But stick with me, stick with me, okay? Stick with me. I have a plan. We are going to steal his body. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm tracking with you. What's next? And then, we're going to tell the whole world that you rose from the dead. Oh, okay. oh 
you know I'm in. I love it already. <laughs> all right, classic, classic. Then what? And then? We're all going to get brutally murdered. Oh! <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Come again, come again. Could you go over that last part real, real quick? Oh, what? We get murdered. What's the problem? Uh... I like it. <laughs> I like it. I mean, don't don't get me wrong, Peach. I love me a good hoax as much as the next guy, right? Right? Uh, oh, what's in it for us? Do we all get riches, fame, and fortune first, right? No, no, get this. You're going to be hated, hated. persecuted, and reviled for the rest of your life! Oh! Okay, guys. Okay, fellas. Fellas, fellas, uh, look, uh, I, I, I gotta be missing something here, right? <laughs> okay? I mean, why on earth would we do this? Can, can we start over? Oh, okay, we'll start from the beginning. Everybody, for John, yeah. the beloved disciple. So, okay, we go down to Jesus' tomb. I, sounds good. This yes. is really yes. easy. Then? We pay off the Roman soldiers that are guarding the tomb with their lives. Why, why would they do that? Then we somehow roll away the big stone that's in front of the tomb. Obviously, you have to move the rock first. Yeah. And then we steal his body. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess. Then we tell the whole world that he rose from the dead and we get brutally murdered for our troubles. <laughs> Epic break, bro. Peter, you rock. Okay, guys, and, okay, and then what? Then we all get killed. Come on. When do we see ourselves become exalted and praised? That's just it. You don't! What, what is happening? Anyone hear what I'm saying? This is the most idiotic plan of all time. Chill out, bro. I mean, do I really have to explain the joke to you? Look, it's that we lie about Jesus' resurrection, and then we all die. Oh! How am I supposed to chill out when our heads are getting cut off? Or worse, what is wrong with you guys? Thomas! Okay, look, back me up here. I know you can't be cool with all this. I know you gotta have some doubts. Come on. Doubts? Ellen, no, the how did it die? Shit, Okay, okay, you guys have officially lost it, okay? I am out of here. I, I'd rather be exiled to a deserted island than spend another minute with you wackos. Have I got some good news for you? <laughs> okay, you can turn it off there. Uh, if you can't laugh at that, you're trying too hard. That's really funny. Uh, and a great illustration about how, um, really, it's just nonsensical to believe that people would give their lives to something they believe is fake, right? Uh, and you think about radicals of any uh, religious background that the desire to give their lives away for what they believe, they don't, people don't give their lives away for something they're halfway committed to, okay? People don't uh, give themselves to be martyred for anything that they're not fully convinced is the truth, okay? And so that's just a fun video uh, to sort of illustrate that point. But what are apologetics? Apologetics 
are the defense of our faith, right? So apologetics are not a weapon we use to go find unbelievers and then talk them into what we believe. Uh, apologetics can be a tool for evangelism. I don't usually think of apologetics as an evangelistic tool, but you know, many times I've been out evangelizing and people have tried to mock me uh, for my faith and, and say, how could you believe in such a nonsensical fairy tale? And good apologetics will actually open a door for me to begin to minister the gospel to that person. Uh, so not primarily a tool for evangelism, but can be a really effective tool when being uh, challenged about your faith, when you're being led by the Holy Spirit to be able to answer with good apologetic answers. Uh, for example, a, a good question uh, somebody might ask you is, how could you believe in this ancient Bible uh, what, is there any proof that it's reliable or that what's being said is accurate? And you should have a good answer for that. You know, you shouldn't be afraid of hard questions, okay? God is not afraid of hard questions. In fact, I think he makes, I mean, he's, Jesus spoke in parables, right? He spoke in a way that confused his disciples where they then had to ask him the meaning of what he was saying. And why do you think he did that? Why do you think he didn't just tell them what he meant the first time, because that would be a much easier way to communicate to people, right? Well, I think he spoke in parables. I think he, he spoke in ways that people didn't understand because he expects us to ask questions of him, to, to engage with him, because when we engage with God with hard questions, we're actually engaging with him as a person, and that's what he wants. He wants to engage with us as a father does to sons and daughters, and I know when my own kids have have things that they're struggling with, they ask me questions, right? So Jesus spoke in parables because he expected the disciples to then ask him questions so that he could dialogue one-on-one -on -one with them in a way that only a father could with, with a son or a daughter. So I don't think God is afraid of hard questions. I don't think we should be afraid of hard questions. I think we should invite scrutiny. I think we should invite criticism, but then also be prepared to wrestle with God for the answer. Okay, And this is what apologetics is. It's just being not afraid of criticism, not afraid of hard questions, not afraid of being scrutinized. I mean, wh why do you think Jesus, why do you think an angel rolled away the, the, the stone in front of the tomb? I mean, Jesus could obviously walk through walls. We see that in other parts of the gospel, right? So what's the point of rolling the tomb away if he can, like, walk through material matter, Right? Because he wanted people to discover what was in the tomb, right? He wanted people to investigate and question what they were hearing. He wanted Mary to see and then Peter and John to, to race up to, to find out for themselves. He likes it when we investigate and, and then discover the truth. And if we're being honest in our questioning, if we're, if we're coming to God with questions that are genuine, and what I mean by genuine is that we're not already decided in what we believe before we investigate, like we're not just trying to be stubborn about what we believe. If we're genuine, I believe God invites us into a discovery process and then reveals truth to us, okay? So apologetics is really, in my perspective, just being bold enough to ask hard questions and then wrestle with God for the answer, all right? And I think, in my opinion, actually, no, I know this for a fact, when we do that, we discover that the scripture has an answer for every question in human history, right? 
There, there's answers uh, for evolution, right? There's answers for climate change. There's answers for human sexuality. There's answers for history. And every uh, sort of question we can come up with, the Bible has an answer for. I just think it required, it's required of us to not be afraid and, and not be intimidated when we don't know. Okay? Well, I think one of the worst things we can do as believers is when we're posed with a hard question that we don't yet understand is to get defensive and act like we know without having an answer. I don't think that does any good to the world around us. I think it's, it's a much wiser approach to say, you know what, I'm not really sure, but I'm going to investigate this and pray into this, and I want to get back to you with the best answer that I can discover in partnership with the Holy Spirit. I think we actually do a much better service to, to the world around us by being honest and allowing ourselves to then use the scrutiny, the criticism that's presented to us to take us on a discovery journey with the Holy Spirit. But there are answers for every part of human, um, the human dilemma, right? I just want to give you the, the climate change. How many of you can tell me how long humans have been recording weather patterns? Yeah, maybe like 100 years. And, and what do most scientists believe that the world has existed for? Hundreds of millions of years, right? So let's just start there. How could you possibly have an accurate tracking of weather change over hundreds of millions of years with just 100 years of data? Isn't that insane? Like, how could you possibly be so arrogant to think that you've got it figured out? Of course climate changes. Tonight it's going to be 20 degrees. Tomorrow it'll be 60 degrees. Climate changes every single day. Do we have as great as impact on the climate change as, as uh, culture would like us to believe? I'm not sure any person could actually answer that because there's not enough data to provide an answer, right? According to how they believe the, the, the world began, right? And so there's an answer in scripture for every human dilemma Tonight, we're just going to do a basic uh, apologetics, and I'm not going to really talk about, like, uh, how to respond to atheists. I think there is no such thing as a true atheist, because it requires a lot of burden, a lot of trouble to believe in nothing. And I don't think anybody is wired to believe in nothing, okay? And, you know, anybody who is a, the, truest, <laughs> the truest atheist is somebody who does nothing. Because they believe there is nothing. And there's nothing for them to have purpose and identity in. So if that's, if that's what you believe, then there's nothing for you to do but just sit and exist until you don't exist. Right? So I don't really think there's any such thing as, a, as an atheist. I think everybody has a longing. Actually, all of creation cries out to know, to know the glory of God. Right? So what I'm going to mostly focus on is how to respond to people who believe there might be a God, uh, who, who, believe there is a, a high, who, who believe there is a higher power, but are not convinced that the higher power is the God of the Christian faith that we believe in, okay? And we call those people uh, traditionally agnostic, okay? People who believe that there is a God, but he's not defined by the Christian faith, and maybe they don't even have a definition for who or what God is. They just believe 
maybe there's a higher power to prescribe ourselves to. That's called being agnostic. An atheist believes there's nothing. And that's just, how can you, it doesn't even make sense, right? It makes no sense. And even leading atheists have become agnostics because it just makes no sense to believe in, in nothing. Like Stephen Hawkins is now agnostic. He's, he's come to grips with the fact that there probably is a higher power because nothing can't come out of nothing, right? There has to be something that exists for something then else to exist. But even still, uh, it, it, it's a hard sell uh, for, for me at this point in my life to not believe that there is no other true God but the one true God, Jesus. And I want to I focus on that and how to, how to speak to people. Maybe they're, they're not full on atheists, but they're agnostic. They're, they're maybe not even searching, but they believe there could be something greater that would benefit their lives if they knew what that greater thing was, okay? So let me start with this. Any reasonable person, anybody who's not a complete stubborn mule, should be willing to confront their belief system in order to discover, to discover if what they believe is actually true, okay? So Christian, non-Christian, atheist, non-atheist, agnostic, non-agnostic, any reasonable person should be willing to, crit, to not maybe criticize, but allow somebody to try to deconstruct their belief system in order for them to then know what they believe is actually what they believe, okay? And again, apologetics are used uh, as a defense mechanism that actually build faith in us and can defend biblical truth in the culture around us. And, and so tonight, where I'm going to start is the validity of Scripture as a well-verified historical document, all right? So not only is Scripture the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit, written through the hand of men, it's also the most verified piece of history, compiled history in human existence, okay? And it's provable, okay? And why do we want to know that? Well, because one of the main critics of Scripture is that it's not a trustworthy source of historical information on the ancient world it claims to be written in, okay? A lot of people say, well, you can't trust Scripture because it was written by King James or Constantine or the, the Council of Nicene. All those things are completely false, all right? It's the most uh, expansive uh, history book that covers the most cultures, the most kingdoms, the most rulers, uh, the most... Um, I don't know how it could say it. It's the most expansive history book in human history. You'll never find a book like the Bible that covers as much human history with as much verifiable accuracy as the Scripture. Okay, Years ago, a young lady was debating me that my Christian faith was outdated and not needed to have a relationship with God. And I responded to her, okay, that's okay for you to believe but what gives you the authority to claim your faith walk with God is true and genuine? And her response was, can you guess? Because that's the way I feel. I said, oh, that's fine. I'm happy that you're happy to feel that way, but I feel like you're wrong. So which one of our feelings is correct, right? I think that's a pretty valid question. Which one of us are having feelings that are true right now? Because we both can't be because 
both of our feelings contradict one another. And she said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, I believe my feelings are correct because I have the authority of written scripture to back up what I feel. Okay, that's really important. All right, that's really important. Truthfully, I would love to be comfortable living by just how I feel. The problem with that is I don't have enough faith in myself. You understand what I mean by that? And so there has to be a groundwork for, for us to start on to then begin to build out what we believe from that groundwork. But there has to be a standard of truth, right? You can't believe a truth and me believe a different truth and both of us believe the truth. One of us has to be a liar, right? There has to be a standard for truth. I believe the scripture is a well-validated standard of truth, and I'm going to show you that right now. All right, so we, we just talked about the Word of God is the most diverse, accurate history book in human history. Not only is it uh, give us a moral guideline, but it's also the most scrutinized history book in human history. There's no other book that's been scrutinized like the Bible. We, we could all agree on that, right? Okay. One of the most common arguments against Scripture is that it's been altered or changed over time. And that what we have today was what was not intended to be written. And that is completely false. So there's a process for verifying ancient texts, right? So uh, when archaeologists discover texts, they have a process that they use to verify if that text they've discovered is uh, proven over time or if it's just mumbo-jumbo that somebody wrote on a tablet or tablet stone, not tablet Samsung, uh, or a piece of papyrus or something like that. They have a process, and what they do is they compare the text in question to other texts that were contemporary to it about or in the same time frame that the text in question was written. It's called Articles of Antiquity, right? And so we have the 66 books of the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament. Every one of those books, every one of those verses and lines of text have been verified to a word, actually, verbatim in some cases, to other ancient texts that have been discovered and dated to the same contemporary, same time, uh, same uh, culture, same, uh, um, uh, the, the, the same place that was described by the, Bible, the text in the Bible, okay? So, um, the Old Testament has been verified by at least 10,000 other articles of antiquity, okay? So the, the, so the Old Testament uh, has been verified by 10,000 other texts that say what the Old Testament say that were written around the same time as the text in question, the Old Testament. That's pretty cool, right? So, like, think about the, has, has anybody heard of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Huge archaeological, arche, a huge discovery in that community, right? I'm a word mixer-upper. Huge discovery, right? Pretty much put a nail in the coffin for anybody trying to criticize the validity of the Old Testament, right? But not just that. There are other texts, too, and, and uh, there's at least 10,000 cumulative that have been found that support the text of the Old Testament. That's phenomenal, isn't it? The New Testament 
has been verified by other articles of antiquity 5,700 times. 5,700 times. That's incredible. Hands down, there is no other ancient text that comes even close to the same amount of scrutiny and verification that the Old Testament and the New Testament have been through. The closest even smidge of like trying to be in the same stratosphere as the New and Old Testament would be Homer's Iliad. Okay, does everybody know what that is? It's an ancient Greek uh, poem book. It's not even making any lofty claims like the Bible. It's just a poem book. You know how many times that book, Homer's Iliad, has been verified by other articles of antiquity? Only 640 times. Okay? 640 compared to 15,000. It's not even close. It's not even like same league. Okay? There's nothing else in the world that has been verified by other texts as many times as the scripture has. It's not even, it's, it's, it's like a, lo, a, a country mile, the distance between the Bible and everything else. What about the Bible's accuracy? So it's one thing to verify uh, that it says something. How do we know if what it says is accurate to what was written initially? Does that make sense? Okay. All right, and, and they've studied this. Uh, the, the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, prove to be extremely accurate. Uh, the Old Testament has been uh, proven to be 95% accurate to the other art- articles of antiquity. Uh, they've, they found only, get this, 13 uh, discrepancies, and those weren't anything about context. They were misspellings of words, slips of the pen, um, you know, words that said this but could mean this, nothing out of context, nothing that would question the integrity of what was being said, just grammatical stuff, 95%. That's incredible, right? What about the New Testament? New Testament, even more so, 99.9% accurate when held up to other supporting articles of antiquity. So not only is it the most verified, it's the most accurate historical book ever written in human history, and it's proven. And you can look all this up at Southeast Seminary. Uh, they, they did a pretty good job going through this. Um, okay, so that answers the question. Has the Bible uh, been historically verified, and has it proven to be accurate in the verification process? And the answer would be enthusiastically, absolutely, right? Absolutely. So the Bible, which is a book uh, that began being told 5,000 years ago, uh, and the story kind of came to a conclusion, but we're still waiting for the, the, the I guess, I don't want to say the sequel, because that seems heretical, but the, the conclusion to the conclusion 2,000 years ago, that's a pretty big span of time, right? How is it possible that a book with that much, with 3,000 years of space as the story is being told, how is it possible for it to be that historically accurate and stood the test of time for this long? How is that possible? How is that possible for so many people to scrutinize and critique and to, to purposely look for reasons to doubt its accuracy 
And it still just stood the test of time with, with no problem. And I think the answer is it's super, supernaturally written. Uh, it's written by the Holy Spirit. Okay? And if you've not heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, do a Google search on that. That pretty much, like I said, was the nail in the coffin for Old Testament critiques. Just word verbatim uh, what Scripture says, and it's pretty incredible. All right, so let me ask a few questions. Uh, wasn't the Bible written by 12 guys conspiring around the campfire? No. Was it written by Constantine? No. Was it written by King James? No. All right. The scripture, the Holy Scripture, was written by a multitude of authors, right? Old Testament, New Testament, over an expansive amount of time, but was then compiled by early church fathers in Jerusalem, namely James, John, Peter, Barnabas, okay? So there wasn't some secret Roman government conspiracy to create a religion with holidays to go with it. That's not true. And there's really no uh, um, real historian who believes that. So you can watch as many YouTube videos as you want, but there's no proof of that, okay? It wasn't like some conspiracy. Constantine uh, didn't make up Christianity with Christian holidays to trick us uh, into following him. No, th this, these scripts, these texts were preserved by the council of, in Jerusalem, Peter, James, John, and these uh, early church fathers uh, compiled these scriptures to preserve the faith that we all have given our lives to, which is beautiful, isn't it? So, but let's look primarily at the at the the authors of the of the New Testament Gospels, the um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, and let's let's kind of examine that so we can make sure that. These authors that wrote this are trustworthy sources of information. Okay? So, two of the Gospels were written by eyewitness accounts. Can you guess which two those are? No, not Luke. Matthew and John, right? Matthew and John, two eyewitness accounts. So, two guys who walked with Jesus. Luke and Mark were written by... Two uh, historians, basically, a doctor who is a historian, and then the disciple of Peter, John Mark, who then was a historian because he wrote down everything Peter said. Uh, and so that seems like, well, okay, wait a second. So the, the New Testament, all four of them weren't written by eyewitness accounts? No. But I think that's important to, to know because it's, it's actually a good thing. That means that there wasn't a group of guys just gathering together to conspire and write the New Testament. There was four different people who had limited or, uh, or uh, long-distance connection to each other who each wrote a gospel, and each of those gospels, despite their limited resources to, to be with one another, corrobor cor corroborate one another to a fault, right? That's incredible, isn't it? All right, so let's start with the, the Gospel of Matthew. What was Matthew before Jesus found him? Tax collector, right? How, how were tax collectors uh, viewed in that day? Bad, right? So do you think he was really looking to make his life harder 
by, uh, <laughs> yeah, oh boy, I really love being hated. I want to find a way to be hated even more. I know, I'll write the Matthew gospel, all right? Mark, or uh, John Mark, who we learn a little bit about in, in the book of Acts, Paul sends him away. Who do you think John Mark went to in that hiatus period when he was sent away by Paul? Well, back to Peter. Peter. So most theologians, most historians, and it's been verified through other uh, ancient theologians who uh, were there with Peter and John Mark, believe that John Mark wrote a word-for-word dictation of what Peter went through walking next to Jesus. So that's actually kind of incredible, because that means that not two, but three of the Gospels are eyewitness accounts. So it would be Matthew's eyewitness account, John's eyewitness account, and then Peter's eyewitness account, which is really cool, because there's some things in Mark that don't really make Peter look like the best guy, but it's still in there. And I think that's worth pointing out as well, right? Okay, so Luke. Luke would be the other uh, non-eyewitness account. Where did uh, Luke get his, uh, his research from? Well, it's not really like, cons- nobody has like a concise answer to that. Most theologians believe it was a, a um, conglomerate of eyewitnesses that uh, Luke resourced from in order to write his gospel, which is actually kind of remarkable because it's basically a corroboration of the other three Gospels, right? Which would be really hard to do with that many different voices speaking into it unless the story was completely true, right? What do police do when they're, in, when they're trying to get to the end of a story, trying to figure out an alibi uh, that somebody's giving? They interview not one witness or two witnesses, as many witnesses as possible because eventually somebody's going to tell a story that doesn't line up with the original story, right? So if we look at uh, Luke's um, research like that, you would think the more he spread the information out, the more uh, inaccurate the data would become, but that's not true. In fact, his gospel is just like the other three gospels which is incredible, actually. That's really incredible that he sourced all this information from so many other people, yet still everyone has the same story. That's pretty cool, right? I think so. Of course, there's no benefit for any of these men to write what they wrote, right? There was not a a reward for them to do this. Each of them faced uh, martyrdom, Each of them faced isolation from their Jewish families and communities. Each of them faced scrutiny from their Jewish faith leaders. And, and of course, we know they still interacted with the Pharisees and and, uh, the Sadducees and still went to temple. So they did have to face people who didn't like them, which I think that's worth noting. All of them uh, incurred financial loss to spend time traveling and recording and researching. That needs to be said, too. So there was a cost for them to do this, right? But even still, all four Gospels corroborate the same story historically and theologically. That's really crazy that not one of them has a different bend on what the message of Jesus was to them 
while they followed them around. And two of them weren't even there. That's pretty crazy, right? All of them believe the same thing. That, that's really not a common thing, uh, especially in a society, in a culture, where writing things down wasn't the primary way people carried stories from generation to generation. In fact, the way it worked in their time is there were traveling storytellers, and the storytellers would go into communities, and they would begin to tell stories to the community, and it was the job of the community to validate if the storyteller was accurate in their retelling of the story, okay? And so you can imagine that there's all sorts of different stories with all sorts of different endings and middles and beginnings, but still the story of Christ perseveres through all of that cultural nonsense and is, uh, there's, there's no discrepancy. There's nothing in Luke's gospel that contradicts the context or the theological truth of Mark's gospel, and same and so forth for John and Matthew. I think that's really important to point out, right? Yep. It's nothing short of a miracle that these men each were able to individually write four gospels that are almost identical of each other in, theologi the in theology, history, and biography of Jesus. That, I mean, that's incredible. None of the Gospels directly contradict each other in any meaningful way that would change the main context. Of course, uh, there are a few like uh, the story of the uh, demoniac, uh, right? I think Luke says it's one man with a legion, and I think it's Mark that says there's two guys. And, and so there's a little bit of, of uh, okay, that's interesting, but it doesn't change the context of the story, does it? No. It doesn't change uh, what Jesus accomplished. It doesn't change what happened to the region after Jesus did what he did. There's just some discussion. Is there one demoniac or two demoniacs? And I don't think that's worth, I don't think that's worth throwing out the baby with the bathwater, right? If, if we're going to use that as our linchpin to, to destroy uh, our faith, I think we've got other issues at play, all right? It would be more suspicious, in my opinion, if all four Gospels were eyewitness accounts written by the, the 12 apostles. Because what would that mean? It means at some point they all sat down together and said, you know what, guys? Let's write this together and we can fool the world. Right? That, would, that would, to me, that, that would, if all four of them were eyewitness accounts or there were 12 eyewitness accounts, that would seem a little suspicious to me. But the fact that there's two that are eyewitness and two that are done by outside researchers verifying the eyewitness accounts means that obviously the eyewitness accounts are accurate. All right. What about the fact that they all had the same bias, right? They all wanted Jesus to be the Jewish Messiah. Absolutely. So they all gave their lives for this. So obviously when they're writing, there has to be at least a little bit of bias about what they're writing, right? That would be logical. Well, let me ask you this. All of us in here believe the Holocaust happened. Amen? None of us find that to be in question. All of us agree on the details and the context of the Holocaust, correct? Unless you're, like, uh, trying to, you know, be a rebellious person to natural cultural agreements, 
then we all in here believe the same thing about the Holocaust. Well, did you know that 90% of the historical data that's been preserved about the Holocaust has been preserved by Jewish people? Right? And that didn't change any of the truth. I mean, all the data is verifiable. So bias doesn't actually mean that it's untrue, right? If it's verifiable, bias doesn't mean that it's untrue. It maybe means that the people recording the information are more passionate than somebody without the bias, but it doesn't make it untrue, right? And that's important to point out as well. All right. What about the time from the original events, so Jesus' life on earth and his death and his resurrection, and the time when the Gospels were written. Did you, you guys know there's a time period between that, right? And so there's a, there is a gap. Um, isn't that kind of, so one of the main critiques is, isn't that kind of like a game of telephone where one person says one thing and then it gets a little co-mingled and then another person says it? No, not at all. Because these men were publicly preaching and declaring and speaking out loud in public about the things they died for. That's not how telephone works. Telephone works, I come up to Sandy and I whisper, and she doesn't quite hear it because I'm kind of being secretive and I don't really want you to get it because I want you to purposely mess up on the next one. That's not what this is. These people were not whispering to each other. They were going out into the street. Who remembers Stephen's uh, uh, testimony of the gospel, right? In public as they're throwing rocks at them. That's not telephone. These people were in the streets preaching the full gospel of Jesus. So it's not a comparable analogy. If somebody says to you, yeah, it's like a game of telephone. No, because when I play telephone, I don't scream it into your face. Okay? I whisper it so you mess it up. That's not what's happening here. It's not the case with the scriptures. The, again, the stories are stories that people are preaching and declaring publicly to one another, even unto death. What, okay, so let's go back to the dates of Jesus' death and the gospel writings. Jesus was crucified at about 33 years old. So he did all of his preaching in those three years, which is incredible. Around A.D. 30. Okay, so I should get a whiteboard, but A.D. 30. All right. The first gospel was written by, anybody want to guess? John Mark. Mark. Mark was the first one. John was actually the last one. Mark wrote the first one roughly 40 years after Jesus' death. Okay? 40 years after Jesus' death. Then Matthew and Luke, potentially 50 years after the death of Jesus. And then finally John, while he was exiled, around 60 years, okay, after Jesus' death. Again, this just makes it more impossible to believe that these men conspired conspired to write this together because there's such long gaps between each of their writings, right? So going back to could they conspire to do this? Well, they could, but that would seem really strange when there's decades between each of their writings, okay? So everybody understand that? So, although this seems like a really long period for the first gospel to be written uh, between Jesus' life on earth and the first gospel, it's really not, especially because there would have been plenty of people alive during that gap who could have provided hard evidence that Jesus' life was a myth, that his crucif- crucif- 
that being crucified was a myth, that his resurrection was a, a myth. There's plenty of people who could have been alive between Jesus's uh, ascension and John Mark's gospel, right? Mark's gospel, right? So uh, there wasn't. There just wasn't. In fact, even in John's, uh, by the time John wrote it, there still would have been people alive who could have argued against Mark's gospel, could have argued against Matthew, Luke's gospel, could have argued against John's gospel, but there's just no convincing case against Christ that's been well verified by historians. And that's pretty important. Okay? Again, there would have been plenty of eyewitnesses. Jesus didn't just wit or didn't just uh, minister to the 12 disciples. We know he ministered to tens of thousands of people all the time, right? So it's untold. And, and then, of course, John says if we tried to compile all the things Jesus did and put them into one book, the world couldn't even contain it, baby. It would go on and on and on and on and on. So let me ask you a question. If Jesus was a hoax, wouldn't there be at least one verifiable person who could have debunked the myth among all those tens of thousands? Of course, right? I mean, we just found out this year about the JFK files. And you're telling me they couldn't find one verifiable person to debunk Jesus out of tens and tens and tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of people? Get out of here. That's crazy. That's really crazy. None of the people who encountered Jesus during his life were able to write compelling, well-documented, well-verifiable accounts that he did not do what the gospel claims he did. Okay? So you can do a, a Google search. There are plenty of people who try to debunk the existence of Christ, who try to debunk his, his, um, the things he did in the gospels, who try to debunk... But none of it is verifiable. None of it's Even in, in uh, the Gospels, it says that the, the Pharisees tried to pay the Roman soldiers to keep it quiet. And it failed. Right? So no one's been able to keep it a secret. All right. So let's, let's look at that, that time gap between Jesus' death and when it was written a little more closely. How many of you believe that Alexander the Great existed? You should, if you're, I mean, if you're just not a, if you're not a history denier, you should believe he existed. Do you want to know how long after his death, the first biography about him was written? Just guess, actually, just guess. It's fun to, if you guess. That's close, 350 years. From the time he died to the first biography about his life, and nobody questions if he existed or if the stories that were written about him are true. Well, there we go. I found one. <laughs> Just ruined the whole sermon. <laughs> That's crazy, isn't it? And we're, we're supposed to get bent out of shape because of 40 years? That's stupid. I mean, if, if you're thinking about it rationally, what do you think that first five years after Jesus ascends was like? Terrifying, right? Of course, Paul comes to Christ... Two years after Jesus' death, okay, 
And he brings a fresh wind of boldness into the church that probably hadn't been happening until that point. But then he begins to write the epistles. And what are the epistles? They're letters to the church, right? And what is he writing about? Things he saw in Jerusalem when he was with Peter and Barnabas and John and James. And he's just reiterating this to the other churches as he's imprisoned. And these are written before the Gospels. So these are more verifiable proof that what the Gospels say are what happened. Because Paul would have been in a church in, uh, let's say, in Jerusalem. And they would have been just testifying about what Jesus did when he walked on the water and invited Peter, right? And Paul would have written that down and then preached it somewhere else, maybe Macedonia, maybe um, Philippi. So it just doesn't make sense to, to allow that gap of 40 years because, of course, the apostles were scared. Of course, they were kind of doing the underground thing. And then, of course, they grew up, right? They were teenagers when Jesus found them. Do you think there was maybe a maturing process for them? I would imagine so. And then they got to the ripe age where they felt confident to write what they saw or write what they researched. Okay. So, again, Jesus impacted hundreds of thousands of people across multiple languages, cultures, with a government and a religious institution trying to destroy him, still accomplished what he set out to accomplish, and nobody's ever been able to dispute verifiably in any way that is meaningful what he's done. So if you're a reasonable person with all that information that is verified by many, 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 many other pieces of information, what's the conclusion we can come to? Well, at the very least, at the, if, if you're just stubborn as all get out and you just don't want to give your life over to God, at the very least, you have to at least admit that Jesus existed, right? You have to admit that the gospel is real history, that the Old Testament is real history, and that it's symbiotic to one another, which is scary. If you're not a believer, to know that information, I would be terrified. Why would I be terrified? Because there's something there that I don't understand, but if it's true, I then have to change what I feel. Right? I have to change what I feel in order to then ascribe to that truth. And this is really why most people don't want to come to grips with these facts because they know that if there really is a God named Jesus, not only did he come to love this world, but he also gave us commandments for us to live our life by that require we change the way we feel, right? So what do the Gospels say? That Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life as fully man, but also fully God, that he was crucified, that he was resurrected and seated at the right hand of the Father, and that any person who professes their faith in them will receive eternal salvation. Okay? The odds of that being a fantasy that was made up by 12 guys are, and that survived 2,000 years of scrutiny are astronomical. Absolutely astronomical. 
So this is why I believe uh, the scriptures to be true. Well, part of why. See, the thing is, most of us have had unique experiences with God, right? Like we're, we're, we've said, wow, I've experienced God in a way where no person can talk me out of his existence. Well, what about people who are refusing to allow God to have an experience with them? This is where apologetics come in, right? To be able to say, you know what, I know you're certain about what you don't want to believe, but I would like to provide you with evidence why you should maybe scrutinize your belief system and really prove what you say to be true is true, right? Okay, any questions about any of that? Sure. Yeah. So in, in regards to the young lady who asked me that question, right? So she, she asked, uh, how could I believe that if she feels differently? Well, the way I can believe that is because there's tangible evidence that says that what I feel to be true is true, right? So now it's your burden to prove to me why I'm a liar. Yeah. And sometimes we forget that, but it's, if I have real evidence, right, then it's your job to then prove to me why my evidence is not enough to prove what I believe. And from where I stand and how I see it, there's a plethora of evidence to support my belief system. So somebody then has to come with the burden to prove why my evidence is not trustworthy of why I believe what I believe. All right. I don't know how we would do ministry time at this point. Uh, I'd love to pray for you for whatever. If you need healing or uh, encouragement or whatever. Is there any more questions? I'm sorry. Any more questions? You guys should really get the book. I forgot to bring it with me. Case for Christ. If you've not read it, it's incredible. It's one of my favorite apologetics book, apologetic books because it's not written with just data after data. You know how like a textbook's written? It's written as a story, and it's really engaging. You'll really enjoy that book. So pick that book up. Don Raglan has a bunch of information. And then the best way to really immerse yourself in apologetics is to ask hard questions like, God, what's, you know, what's the purpose of my life? God, uh, you know, should I believe old earth or new earth? Should I, uh, what should I believe about the climate? Ask God those questions and then allow him to lead you in the scripture to the truth. Okay. Let me pray and then we'll go into a time of prayer. Is that, is that okay? All right. So, Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you, God, that 